You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's episode, Revival Requirements, Philip Edwards will look at the Christian preparedness for revival and the telltale signs of its requirements. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and to see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. I want to look at the, the role that we might have to play if a revival is going to come. Does God expect something of us? It appears that in everything of life, God seems to do 99% of it. And he leaves a little space for us, a willingness to come, a readiness, uh, a sense of turning away from something in our lives. God doesn't do it all for us. He leaves a part for us. And I want to try and examine what part we might have to play if God wants to bring a revival to this land. I'm going to start from, uh, with a, a quotation from a man called John Wallace. He said, before there can be a blessing... Somebody has to bear a burden. The the question then we need to ask ourselves, are revivals something that God does? He just does them when he wants to do them. Or are they really uh, the result of our involvement with God? Does God work sovereignly? Or does he expect us to play a part in this? To the... I suppose I would say they're sovereignly a work of God. We can't decide when we want one, and I don't think we can do things to make it happen. So it's, it's a sovereign work of God when God decides. And yet, as we study the scriptures and look at past revivals, it appears that God draws a number of people in to work with him. It never seems to be a lot. If you read books on past revivals, there's just a few people that God moves upon and and works with to to bring it about, but there always are a number of people. So we want to look at the two truths. What part of it is the sovereign work of God and what part of it is the free will of man being involved in the process? There's a, someone suggested that uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like the two lines of a, a railway track. If the train was to veer too much to one side or too much to the other, well, the train would derail. It wouldn't work. And so it's as though our lives run parallel with God and that the train moves on both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man acting with God. If we overemphasize the sovereignty of God in the things of life, then what happens is um, we, we just become lazy and we become passive as Christians. We don't even bother praying. We just say, well, if God's going to do it, God's going to do it. You know, whatever Allah wants. Well, we don't worship Allah. We worship God. And as we look at the scriptures, we see we have a responsibility. We have something to do. We have to submit to God. If we think it's more of man and what man wants and when man prays, well, we become very, um, well, presumptuous and arrogant. 
And there is a lot of teaching in the church which almost says, you know, you can do this. You heal the sick. Well, I, I can't heal the sick and nor can you heal the sick, but I can cooperate with God. I can exercise faith. I can lay hands on the sick. I can believe. I can love people. But in the end, if God's going to heal, it's God who heals. I can't heal. And yet God expects me to play a part in the whole process. And I think this is true when it comes to revival. Quoting Charles Finney, who was a great revivalist, he likened revival to farming. This is what he said. He said, you prepare the soil, you plant the seed, and you water it. And the result is obviously a good crop. But he says, what if you planted the seed in the summer? You see, if you plant in the wrong season, you don't get a crop. So it, there is, there's always the element of God. God says, I want you to do certain things. I want you to act in a certain way. But actually, when it comes to the final analysis, it's about me and it's about my time and it's about how I want to do things. So we said last week that revival, we said evangelism was man working for God, but we said a revival was God working for man. It's, it's God's work. Revival is God's work. And whenever God is involved, there's always an element of a mystery involved. It's as though we can't quite get all the answers. We can't fit it neatly into a box. And revival is very much like that. Acts chapter 2 helps us with this. Remember at Pentecost, which we say is the, the first and the great uh, revival of God. It might have been the greatest revival there ever was in, in this period of the New Covenant. We know there were revivals in the Old Testament, but we're looking in revivals in the New Covenant. It says this, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, it is though that God determined when the day of Pentecost was. Man couldn't make it work. God, God determined when Pentecost would be, when there would be the outpouring of the Spirit, the church would be birthed, as it were, and this tremendous revival would come to the land. But it says that they, the Christians at that time, the believers, they were together in one place. So they had a part to play. God was going to do it when God was going to do it, but they were together in one place. The people gathered together. God had moved upon them, encouraged them in certain ways, and he had brought them together. There was a spiritual preparation in the hearts of the disciples. That's, that's what I think that God wants to do with the Christian. He wants us to prepare a preparing of our heart, a preparing. Uh, I, try, I try to think of a better way to explain this, but I can't really. There's a preparedness that God expects of us, and it covers a whole wide range of things. Prayer is important, but if we think if, if it's just prayer, if we just pray, it's going to happen, I don't think the Bible teaches that. There is a whole area of preparedness for God to come and to visit us in these very unique ways. If you know anything about revival or you've read books on revival or you've read anything that has interested you on it, there's always one verse of scripture from the Old Testament that comes up again and again and again. 
It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. Very uh, popular when it comes to revival. If you read about it, some people will say, well, this has got nothing to do with revival. Well, in its context, it hasn't. It's to do with King Solomon and uh, preparing the temple for the Lord and getting everything right and the blessing of the Lord coming to his people. So we have to work out sometimes our verses or passages of scripture in the Old Testament that we read about. Can we apply them to our lives? Can we apply them to the New Testament? Well, some it's obvious and some it's not so obvious. So I think I'm going to convince you that this is one that we can apply to revival in our day. 2 Chronicles then, 7.14. The Lord said, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. I imagine if you've read anything about revival, that's the verse of scripture that you've heard over and over and over again. But what I'm saying is, before we just rush off and pray, there's a whole number of other things that are included in that verse that we need to examine. It is God preparing ourselves for a revival, for the outpouring of a spirit in a a way that we, we can't even imagine. Four stipulations then, four aspects of preparation. He talks about humility. It's just as important for those who are going to pray that they come with humility to God. They come with a devotion to God and they come with a repentant heart if there are things to to deal with. As I said the promise was originally given to King Solomon regarding the nation of Israel but I believe it can be applied to the situation of expecting God to come and heal our land to come and bring a revival to us. I believe that the principle of of coming to God in humility and praying and devoting ourselves and turning away from sin, those are the conditions by which God says, if you come to me about anything with these attitudes in your heart, I can't resist you. It's, it's like fathers that can't resist their children when they come, you know, to be picked up by their fathers. The father says, I couldn't help but pick you up. I couldn't help but love you and, and cuddle you. And so as we come to God with these attitudes in our heart, he can't help but respond to us. And another way of checking whether something in the Old Testament applies equally to the New Testament, Old, Old Covenant, New Covenant, is if you can find the scriptures that correspond with that or support this very same argument. I'm going to suggest to you what James has written in James 4, 8 and 10. It does this. He says this. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. So God is calling us to his presence. He doesn't come primarily or first to us. We go to God. He wants to see us come to him. And then, of course, everything else is his response to us. Come near to God and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, he says, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Then he says, humble yourself before the Lord. And what will he do? He'll lift you up. Just like the father would lift the child. He will lift us up. So those same conditions that we read about in the Chronicles verse, they're almost identical with James. So we can say, yes, that verse in Chronicles, it can apply to New Covenant Christians today. I want to look carefully at that Chronicles uh, verse of Scripture. It says, if, if my people... So straight away we see it's, it's conditional. God is issuing a condition, the very use of the word, if my people do something. And we're called his people. The only people that can be involved in the, the bringing about of a revival, of, of God moving in our nation, if, if anyone is going to be involved at all, it's us. It is the people of God. And then not only all the people of God, but the people of God that want to see a revival, the people of God who are devoted to God, the people of God who have a, a desire to walk before God in holiness. They, they quickly repent, turn away from things that are wrong in their life, a people who will walk humbly before their God, a people who want to pray and seek the face of God. It is those people. So of all the Christians that there are, there's, there's a limited number of people that, that God would expect to come to him and to uh, put this verse into operation. So God is looking then for certain conditions to be met before he will act. Now, you can't nail God down to that. God can do whatever God likes, whenever he likes, because he's God. The only things he can't do are the things that he has limited himself to do. So if he says, I can't do something unless you do something, then God can't do that. But he's not saying that here. God can bring a revival just as, as when he wants to. God, can, God wants you to be involved in the salvation of people's lives. But listen, God can just go out and save anyone when he wants to. He, can, he, he wants you to be involved in the healing ministry, but he can heal anyone he wants to. He doesn't really need us. He just chooses in his grace and his love to employ us in the whole thing, to, to cause us to be working with him. As the people of God then, the people who desire to see more of God, desire to see the power of God, desire to see our nation honouring God again, it is we that have this responsibility to God. We want to, if we, if God is looking for Christians to, to play a part, we're standing up and saying, Lord, show me what part I'm to play. I'm willing to play my part. Just show me clearly what it is. So God has an expectation for specific things to happen before a revival will happen. Then he goes on to say, who are called by my name. Well, God has called us. We are the, the chosen, the called out people. That's what the church means, a called out company of people. We represent the people of this world to God. Just like Adam represented all of mankind, we 
uh, born-again believers, we represent the whole of mankind and we come before God on behalf of mankind. We are representative of all men and women. We have access to God because he has saved us and we can come into his presence. So we are the very ones that must come and petition on behalf of those that are lost. It also says that we are a priesthood. So it is us that represents God to the people. It's as though like a true Old Testament priest, we stand between God and the people. Now we know that the priesthood in that sense has gone away and people have direct access to God through Jesus Christ because he is now our priest. But we represent God to the people and the people to God. And just as the priest had to live differently from everybody else, that the priest's way of living was very strict. To be a priest in the Old Testament was really hard work. Okay, but, but it's easier for us today to be priests because of the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as that, we should be different to other people. It should be obvious. Our difference should be obvious. It says if we will humble ourselves. To humble yourself is to make yourself available to God to do whatever God calls you and asks you to do. God, what is it you want me to do? Talk to me, Lord. Show me. Whatever it is, that's what I'm going to do. We will live then in a way of humility before him, believing in him, trusting in him, ready to respond to the things he wants us to do. We humble ourselves. And then it says that we pray. We pray. As I said, there's, there's more to uh, preparing yourself or expecting a revival. There's more than just prayer, but, but prayer is there. In any Christian uh, adventure, any Christian work that we do, any Christian ministry, there's always prayer. It's always prayer. Everything is undergirded by prayer. It's not always the number one thing, but it's always there in whatever you do. It says in the early church, in the opening book of Acts, it says they, they devoted themselves, and it says they devoted themselves to doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, it doesn't put prayer first, but prayer is always there. It's, as, it's assumed by God that we will always pray. And for a revival to happen, there will be an element where we're called to pray. Prayer then. I want to talk a little bit about prayer. I would describe prayer as the flip side of providence. Providence is God doing things. Prayer is us getting involved with God as God does things. Prayer is the acknowledgement that we believe that God is there, that God rules and that God provides. If we didn't believe in a God, we would never pray. The very fact that we do believe in God and we believe that God rules the universe, that he provides for us, that's the very reason we go to him and we pray, we acknowledge his existence. And I believe if we do acknowledge the existence of God, God wants us to come and relate to him, talk to him, fellowship with him. 
And it needs to be a natural process for all of us to, to be engaged in a conversation with God. It, it need not be a formal thing. Sometimes prayers are very formal, I understand that. And sometimes in an assembly or a group, they're more formal. But our prayer life is our ongoing relationship, our talking, our, just everything in that we're communicating with God. Prayer is an activity by which we acknowledge that we cannot be our own Lord. We cannot rule our lives. We are always, we always should have a poverty of spirit, it says uh, in, the, uh, in the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. I think the way that I like to think of this, when I rise in the morning, I need the Spirit of God with me all day. Whatever I do, I need the Holy Spirit to be with me to strengthen me. When I get to the end of the day, I've, I've, he's worn out, as it were. He's finished with me for the day, and so I'm, I'm back in poverty of spirit. So when I wake up the next day, I go, here I am, useless again. Lord, I need your spirit again to help me today. So the idea being, I never become self-sufficient. I never think, well, I can do this. I think, unless you turn up, God, this is going to go disastrous. This meeting, this conversation, this work I have to do, I need you all the time. So there's a, we're conscious all the time that we're poor in spirit. We need the spirit desperately in our lives. He, he is our Lord. That's why we pray to him. Prayer is a way of expressing uh, what I call our yes to God. The answer, I used to say when I, I pastored down there in London, I used to say to people, the answer's always yes. It's always yes, it's never no. And the idea is, you should say yes to everything, then if you can't do it, you have to try and excuse yourself from it. But the answer fundamentally is, yes, I will. Will you help me? Yes, I will. Will you support me? Yes, I will. I'll, I, my answer to you is always yes. Expressing our yes to the conviction that God is working his purposes out. In prayer, God is working his purposes out. In nature, in men, in the church, in history, the purposes of God are being worked out. And when we come in prayer, we're coming to say, yes, God, whatever you want, God, I will assist you, I will be with you, I will humble myself to work out your purposes. Prayer is our way of responding to his invitation to be a member of his covenant people. Now, this is a mystery that God would have invited us into covenant relationship with him. Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God says, can I enter into a covenant with you? Will you work with me on this? It's just beyond us. Beyond us to even think that God would invite us to be co-workers. But he does. And so he, he wants us to pray. He wants us to be the covenant people that he's called us to be. Prayer then is our response to God's invitation to share in his fellowship, to walk with him. It's an expression of our union with him. 
If you never pray, it means that you don't express your union with God. God's doing his thing and you're doing your thing. He requires us to pray. As I said, it's, it's something beyond my understanding that God's lordship is such that he allows us a place in his government of the world. You believe it, you. You're invited into his government of the world. What is wrong with God, for heaven's sake? Why would he invite you? Why would he invite me? I mean, I can just about run my family, uh, just about look after my wife and, and the, the little bit of responsibility I have. Why on earth would he say, Philip, come, I'm running the world and I want you to run it with me. Now, he's, he's never as foolish as to give me the reins of the world. He holds them very firmly in his hand, but he calls me up onto the chariot, you understand? And he wants me to fellowship with him and, and, and be with him as he, as he moves and he holds the reins of the world. But we have a place, as I've said, in this whole exercise. Now, don't think of yourself, well, if I don't pray, a revival will never happen. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's a privilege to talk to God about such things. And it's only when our heart is moved by what we see and what we don't see that we engage ourselves in prayer, in a, a fellowship and a relationship with God that will, will bring about the answer to our nation's problems. And it says that we are to seek his face. We're to humble ourselves, we're to pray, and we're to seek his face. God wants us to keep looking intently until we see the face of God. We don't see it immediately, we turn in his direction. We have to look intently. It says in Jeremiah 29 and 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's it. We have to keep focused, looking for God, looking our eyes in his direction totally all the time. So to, to think, oh, well, they've got a, a prayer meeting about revival. I think I'll just turn up and I'll join them in the prayer meeting. But you're not doing the other things. See, it doesn't work. It, you have to do all of the things that God requires if we're going to be those people who are going to be called up and work with him and change the affairs of this life. You, you won't find God if you look half-heartedly for God. If you have a divided heart, if your eyes are on this and that and, and, and a little glance towards God, it doesn't work. Matthew 5 and 8, talking about the Beatitudes again, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What does pure, purity of heart mean? Well, it doesn't mean being pure in our hearts as we might think it means. It means single-minded, being focused on the Lord. It makes sense then, doesn't it? If you're focused on the Lord, if you're single-minded, then you will see God. You will see him. And that's what he requires of those who will gather 
and bring about this revival that's necessary. Matthew 7 and 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. The idea is being persistent in pursuing God. We just don't look quickly or not once or we, we are persistent. We pursue him. People can give up far too easily, be half-hearted in their approach of God, concluding that God is not interested in them or he doesn't want to hear their prayers or he doesn't want to answer. There was a, a traditional idea. It's not spoken about much today, but God is hiding from us. He's hiding, he's not revealing himself, but it's in our persistent pursuance of him that we see him. And of course, once you've seen him, it's so wonderful. It just supersedes everything else. It was worth all the searching. It was worth all the looking. It was worth the the perseverance to keep seeking the face of God. To know God, it takes faith. It takes focus and it takes a follow through that will assure us of a reward. See, God might speak to you about praying for revival, about preparing your heart for revival. He doesn't call everyone. I don't believe that. He'll call some. But are you prepared to follow through? Having committed yourself to something, Are you the sort of person that will follow it through all the way through to the end? All the way through. And it says, and turn from your wicked ways. There seems to be no alternative. You're either righteous or wicked in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. So if you're not walking in righteousness, you're described as being wicked. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it says, for they will be filled. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, it becomes your, your food and your drink. The desire to walk before God in righteousness is, is preeminent in your life. That if you could choose never to sin again, that would be your choice. Lord, if I could choose never to sin, never to make a mistake, never to slip, never to fall, that would be my desire, Lord. That's what I'm pursuing doing the right thing. See, it is all of these things that satisfy God. I quoted last week uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones to you, and uh, he's speaking here on the context of can a revival be manufactured by people. Now, I want to underscore this again. God requires something of us, but a revival is the work of God. It is not the work of man. It's a great privilege to be called by God to be part of a... And it's always a small group of people that bring revival. If you read the history of quite a number of revivals, it isn't hundreds and thousands of people that are gathering. It's just a few people that God calls at a specific time to to walk in, in a way of holiness before him. And it is he works with them. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, a revival is a miracle. It is a miraculous, exceptional phenomenon. It is the hand of the Lord and it is mighty. 
A revival is something that can only be explained by the direct action and the intervention of God. You can't explain it. You can't say we did one, two, three, four, we just read Chronicles and we did those four things and revival came. No, no, it'll be much more than that. A direct action and intervention of God. These events belong to the order of things that men cannot produce. Men cannot produce a revival. Men can produce evangelistic campaigns, as we said last week. Men cannot and never have produced a revival, or they try to many times. A revival, by definition, is a mighty act of God, and it is a sovereign act of God. It is as independent as that. Men can do nothing. God and God alone does it. If you can explain what is happening in a church, then it's not a revival. If you can explain a thing, then it's not a miracle. A miracle is the direct, sovereign, immediate, supernatural action of God, and it cannot be explained. And that is the essential truth about a revival. There are no methods used in a revival. If methods are used, you can understand the results. And if you do certain things, you will get your results. Man can do nothing to produce a revival. All he can do is prepare himself that God would use him in the process of doing what he wants to do. It's of God. I want to share with you now, just briefly before we go into this next lesson, uh, a friend of mine, um, I've known him for some years, and we were together working in ministry. He's, I think he's about 10 years younger than me, and he has, he has two daughters around about the age of 20. Uh, the, the younger one, she, she called him the other evening and she said, Dad, I, I want you to pray for me. He said, what's wrong? She says, oh, I just, uh, I don't know, I just, I can't settle. Uh, I just feel just frightened about things. Now, although she's grown up in a Christian home and she, uh, parents have taken her to church, and but she in herself has, has decided not to follow the Lord, as it were. She's, she's turned away. I mean, she never really committed her life to Christ. He could never say that she was saved. I mean, when you're, you bring up children, they're very young, they go to church and they're compliant, but of course, as soon as they get to an age where they don't want to, they become very uh, difficult sometimes. So, so she hadn't been to church for years and years and years. But this particular night, she, and she respected her father and that her father would pray. So he thought, well, I'll just go in and I'll probably pray for peace and, and quietness and, and all this sort of thing. And he, he starts to pray and she, she stops him after a minute and she said, all I can see is demons. And, and she was being tormented, as it were, by, by demons. So uh, he knew something of deliverance, so he did what he felt he needed to do and rebuke these things and, and cast them, uh, command them to go and everything else. And, and she felt a peace upon her. But then God stepped into the scene 
she said, I can see, I can see a lion. I mean, her eyes were closed. And, and she goes, and he said, for the next two hours, she was receiving revelations. She was saying things that um, she wouldn't have remembered or, uh, but everything she said was sort of in line with scripture. It, it was amazing. He said, what was happening to her? And he said, this went on. For, for a couple of hours and after a bit he thought oh, I need to record what's going on so there was this tremendous work of God that was happening God had broken into the scene as it were he and he he he, he saved her wonderfully that night he just did a tremendous thing I'm talking just two nights ago and so he was really excited and we had a good chat on the phone about it and the fantastic thing with the God was happening. And I said, you know, this couldn't be more timely as I speak about revival to see God burst into the scene, as it were, of just a person's life and reveal himself and liberate her and set her free and set her on a new course and, and bring such revelation to her. She was transformed in a moment, well, it took two hours, but she was transformed, as it were, that night. Tremendously born again, moving in one direction and now completely moving in the other. He said to her this morning, he said, how, how do you feel? She said, I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted by it. But everything that ex she experienced was real. See, when God breaks in, what it takes us years to accomplish the spirit of god does it in a moment in an instant now the girl wasn't particularly looking for anything i know that her dad has prayed all the years for her and for his two girls and so god in his mercy just broke into that life and through through a revival in her life really brought her into a wonderful salvation and has probably transformed her life and, 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 and given a vision for the future and what she'll do and everything else. When God comes, what God does, he does in a moment of time which would take us years to accomplish in the natural. That's what we require. That's what we want God to do. God will require some of us to be engage with him on this i'm going to go through now a number of signs which we should look for which we should pray for and which we should be sensitive to to know if the times are right remember what charles finney said you can plant the seed you can water the seed but it won't grow unless god's timing is perfect so we can't just decide we're going to pray for a revival and get a revival no no god has to do something and draw us and prepare everything and the scene has to be right as well so i'm going to give you uh, seven conditions seven is the perfect number so preachers should never go beyond seven examples because once they've gone beyond seven, they've, they've worked it to death, really. Uh, you can have less than seven, but you can't have more than seven. I'm joking. Okay, number one, the first thing that we need to be looking for is a spirit of deadness and lawlessness in our country. Deadness and lawlessness. And unfortunately, deadness 
in the church. Now, we finished off last week, I shared with you a number of scriptures that showed that uh, God thinks sometimes if the church is asleep, if it's not ready, it's dead or it's half dead. So deadness is something that indicates that God, God might be on the move. It's a fact of history, that is, that revival often breaks out in a time of complete deadness amongst the believers, where there is in the nation abounding sinfulness, as if God is saying, that's enough, I've seen enough, there's been, the slide has been too much. If I was to leave this a bit longer, the church might disappear in this particular land or this particular nation. Unless I intervene, the danger is my church will be swept away because the enemy keeps moving and moving and my people are going more and more into a dead state, as it were. I want you to remember what it was like when Jesus came. In the book of Acts, Jerusalem was in a terrible state. Remember when Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? It says, as he came around the corner and he saw the city of Jerusalem, it says he wept. He wept over Jerusalem because he knew the terrible state and the condition it was in spiritually. He knew how bound it was and so he wanted to do so much. He wanted them to receive God and to turn and, and to receive him, but that wasn't going to happen. Before the crucifixion of Jesus, remember what he said about Jerusalem? He prophesied over it. Let me read it to you in Luke 19. It says, as he appeared Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known of this day, what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. He is expressing to you the condition of Jerusalem at the time when Jesus came. It couldn't have been at a, a lower ebb, as it were. It couldn't have been in a, in a more terrible state. As I was thinking about this, well, I thought God hadn't spoken for 400 years. Can you imagine God not saying anything, not turning up, not doing anything? No wonder the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the elders and the teachers were in such a terrible state. God hadn't spoken for so long. It is as though the people of God in Jerusalem had reached an all-time low. And he says, you're so low, this is what's going to happen to you. This total city, the people of God will be smashed and broken down and they'll be dispersed. And it's the end, as it were, of this nation, this city, this people. They will be dispersed. The people would never be totally destroyed. They would always be because God had made promises. But, but this, this was the condition of it. But before that happened, 
in this terrible state that he was, or that Jerusalem was in, he sent a revival. He sent Pentecost. So in a state, in a way that the, the more terrible our nation becomes, the more God notices and wants to respond to save our nation, to turn us back to him. Those who mourn for the condition of our nation, those who grieve over its godliness, are the very ones that God will call. Now, you have to be honest with yourself. Do you mourn for the condition of this nation? It's a question you must ask yourself. Those who grieve about its godlessness, maybe the most instrumental person in the outpouring of the Spirit of God to bring a revival to God's people was John the Baptist. John the Baptist mourned over the condition of the people of God. He mourned, he got angry as well. He turned to, to, on the people to bring them in, to, to prepare them for the coming of God, the revival that would come, the, the, the power of God coming to turn people back to God. He was the instrument that God used. See, he just calls a few of us. He won't call hundreds necessarily. It doesn't take hundreds. It will simply be a few. God will, by his spirit, call a number of people and direct them to call upon him, just like he did John, to bring about the change of a nation. It says Psalm 119, It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. Obviously, David, or whoever, it was David who wrote this psalm, but David didn't write all the psalms. He only wrote about half of them. But they could see the the condition of the nation, and it grieved them in their heart, and they, they cried out to God. We've got to be honest. Are we grieving for our nation? Now, I'm not trying to put anything on you, because it has to come from the Lord. You can't, you can't conjure up grieving for something that God doesn't come and deal with you with. But what he'll do for those he's calling, he will give them that, that heart burden, as it were. The hopelessness of the situation is one of the strongest arguments for God to move. This is what Jonathan Edwards said in 1742. How dead a time it was everywhere before this work began the great revivals that took place under Jonathan Edwards he said you would never have dreamt this would have ever happened because people were so opposed to God I've got a quote there from the Liverpool Daily Post 1904 which is to do with the Welsh revival it said the 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 writer of this article said if I had been asked a month ago whether a revival was probable in Wales I should have answered no. It seems to me that the higher criticism had wrecked the ordinary machinery of a revival. The church was, was, was no more compassionate and crying out to God. It was more bound up in its preaching and it had lost its way. The passion for God had been gone 
And he thought, I could never imagine a revival coming. Yet in that terrible condition, that's when God moved. It says in Isaiah 59, 19, it says, for the west, from the west, sorry, men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, that's the east, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. There's another rendering of that, an alternative, 59:19 of Isaiah. He says, Oh, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will put him to flight. It's as though as the enemy rolls over a nation or rolls over a church or causes the church to almost be dead or lifeless, God says that's enough and then he comes with a mighty flood to push that back. As it were, his strategy against the gates of hell. The second condition I have here is a spirit of dissatisfaction amongst God's people. Are you happy with the church? Now, I'm not saying your church, and I'm not encouraging you to be critical about your church, but the church generally. When you read the scriptures, and when you look at the church, do you see a great disparity between the two? You think, the church doesn't look like I read about in the Bible. God isn't doing the things that I I see that God did. We're not doing the things that they did. And when that comes, there's a tremendous dissatisfaction. Now, I'm not asking you to grumble and complain about your church or be dissatisfied with your church because I pastored for many years and I would love to have seen many, many more things and I didn't see them. But one becomes dissatisfied with what one sees. Spiritual restlessness becomes evident. One thought struck me that people haven't been in church for a long time, in that long time out, do you think they will say to themselves, I wonder if I'll go back again? Now, I don't want to encourage that or say that. You need to be in church. Please hear me. I don't want to be one who said, oh, Philip said this or Philip said that. No, but, but does the question cross your mind? Well, am I missing much? Is, is life just carried on the same for me, whether I was there or not there? Oh, it would be nice to see my friends and things. But is it vastly different because I haven't been? We just ask ourselves, and is there a dissatisfaction then that we're maybe afraid to admit or acknowledge? Believers begin to view their growing concern about their spiritual ineffectiveness. I was always concerned, you know, at the end of meetings, you'd invite people to come forward for prayer and you'd pray for them and then you'd say, next week, anyone wants to come forward? And the same people came forward and came forward and came forward all the time. You'd say, what's going on here? Well, what was going on was nothing. Now, I was praying with all the passion I could pray with and all my understanding that I had and I wanted God to do something. But often you think, is anything changing here? And, and, and we should be honest sometimes and, and say, well, I'm dissatisfied with this because I think there should be more than this. And as I say, not being critical about the fellowship you're in, but, but just asking the question, God, why, why is it quite like this? Surely God must have something better than this for his people. A thirst for God then 
begins to grow in our hearts. I must have more of God. A desire for God again to take center stage. You know, when you read about the things, even in the Old Testament, and don't forget, we're new covenant Christians now, and the Holy Spirit lives in us. But, but when he, he, he brings down a blessing on the temple, and it says, no one can stand before the Lord. They all fall face down on the ground. They can't even serve God. You're thinking, oh God, please turn up at church next Sunday and shut us all up. So we fall on the ground in just humble adoration before you. God, turn up, please, God, turn up. Now, I'm not saying God isn't there by his spirit and you're not blessed and and things aren't happening. But when we read about the things that happened, either in the book of Acts or even in those exciting passages in the Old Testament, God, God presenced himself. A desire then for God once again to take centre stage. I shared with you that I'd gone to Toronto when the Toronto blessing was there and one prophecy that came through more than more than once and and the I think the evening I was there there was something like 25 other or uh, yeah I think so other ministers from England were there and he said what are you all doing here and he said I know why you're all here because you're tired and and you you've worked hard at causing the church to keep going but it's though it's as though God is not there. He's, he's not present in the way that you want him to be. You're going through the motions. And he said, what you want is God to turn up. God to be amongst you. We read the scriptures and sometimes ask, where is God? Isaiah 64 verse 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. Oh God, that you would come down. You would set your foot in this place. A quote now from Evan Roberts, the, really the heart of the Welsh revival, the man that God used uh, really quite significantly there. This is in 1904. You should see some images on your screen now if everything's working well for you. And there are some pictures there that we've got regarding the Welsh Revival. Roberts was despondent over the church's impotency to reach the unconverted. Listen what he says. For days he had been brooding over the apparent failure of modern Christian agencies and he felt wounded in the spirit that the Church of God should so often be attacked. While in the slough of despond, that's a tremendous expression, isn't it? The slough of despond. He walked in the garden. It was about 4 p.m. Suddenly, in the hedge on his left, he saw the full face of scorn, hatred and derision. And he heard a laugh as of defiance. It was the prince of this world who exalted in his despondency. Then there suddenly appeared another figure, glorious, arrayed in white, bearing in his hand a flaming sword borne aloft. The sword fell off what, uh, sorry about that really old-fashioned word there, uh, the first figure, and it instantly disappeared. He could not see the face 
of the sword bearer. God had given him a vision that, that Satan was just ruling everything. The church was impotent as it were but he saw a vision that God was coming and he was he was going to deal with the serpent as it were the third condition that I want to bring to you is the desire to break up the fallow ground the fallow ground in our own hearts it's interesting we can think we're in a real good place with God but but sometimes we're not in such a good place. Hosea 10 and 12 says this. He says, Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unploughed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Believers can allow their hearts to become hardened to the things of God. We just get used to little happening or nothing happening and we just go back for more and more meetings as it were. We, 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 just, we just walk through the thing again and again and again and our hearts become hardened, weed-bound, unfruitful. Land which had once borne fruit Maybe when we were first converted or we can look back to tremendous experiences with God and, and we remember just the joy and the excitement, but it, it's sort of gone. Some people call it the honeymoon period and they say, oh, don't worry, the honeymoon period will be over. Listen, you never want the honeymoon period to be over. You want it to go on forever and forever and forever. We want the life and the vitality of the things of God to be present with us always but which, which now is an uncultivated heart, a hard heart. It needs turning over. You know, we can be so correct in our doctrine and yet hard. We can be right, but wrong at the same time. We can sit under great ministry, yet never change. You know, sometimes I've, I've thought as a preacher going and preaching and preaching and preaching, and seeing the, the same people with the same problems week after week after week, and you're thinking, is anyone listening to me? Am I wasting my time? Uh, because there's nothing else we can do but encourage and inspire people and, and pray that God will move upon the hearts of people and soften those hearts. Weed bound, weeds choke the crop. Carnality, laziness, materialism, apathy can, can just slowly find its way into our hearts again. Nothing sinful or evil, just an apathy that tends to just pervade our lives. Also, this fallow ground, our hearts can become unfruitful. It no matter how much seed is planted in there, what we read or what people preach or what we listen to or the, the songs that minister to our heart, it doesn't matter how much rain is there, no more fruit is produced because of all these wonderful things. The prophet said you're to break up the fallow ground of your heart. We're to bring our hearts into a humble and contrite state before God. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. God is not in the business of 
humiliating. And it appears God isn't in the business of humbling either. He encourages us to do it. It needs to be genuine humbling. James 4 and 10 says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a bit like the prodigal who was so wild and um, arrogant in his attitude towards his father and everything. But it says one day he came to his senses. I can't help thinking that God whispered in his ear because he had to humble himself. He had to be the one that made the decision that he would go home because God would not come to him. It's interesting when you read that chapter 15, when it's the lost sheep that Jesus looks for the sheep. When it's the lost coin, the woman sweeps until she finds it. But when the son is lost, the father doesn't go after the son. The son has to come to his senses and come back to God and humble himself. And we know that as soon as that happens, God rushes to him. We, we make the decision to, to move towards God and then God moves towards us. The pride in our heart is exposed. We agree with what God says about us. We turn from all that offends him and we humbly come towards him. Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, My sacrifice O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise if I come to you. Humbling, it doesn't mean that we speak disparagingly of ourselves. Oh, look, a wonderful Toronto picture there. That's it, I remember it now. It's not about speaking disparagingly of ourselves or denying the gifts which God has given to you. God has gifted you. Don't talk yourself down. I'm not asking you to do that. I want you to take your rightful place before God and let him expose what's in your heart. Let him show you your heart. Peter Lewis said this, Revival comes to a desperate church, not to a triumphant one but to a desperate church. The fourth thing I have here is the awareness of God's time. A feature of revival is its suddenness. People aren't expecting it. He comes suddenly. It says in Acts 2 and 2, suddenly, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. One minute it was quiet and the next minute... That The force was upon them. God had moved. God had released his spirit in this tremendous, powerful way. But in the suddenness that comes, those who are ready, who are prepared, who have humbled themselves, who want to see a change in the nation, who desire to see the power of God manifest, who are a little bit discontented with the, the humdrum and the, the mundaneness of, of the worship that we have. God speaks to those people. In all of it, he is speaking as we see these things and hear these things. Not that God speaks words, but we see all those things that I'm talking about. 
We see them all the time. We recognize them. And he's revealing to us, I'm coming. I'm coming. Prepare yourself. Those that will listen, prepare yourself. I'm coming. 1 Chronicles 12 and 32 says, The men of Issachar, who understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. See, we have to read the signs of the times. What is God saying? What is God doing? He probably won't wake you up in the night and talk to you, but you read the signs. You have a, a sensitivity to God. You're focused on God. You want the things of God. Ralph Mahoney said, A good prayer is this, Lord, let me be a son of Issachar. Give me an understanding of what you're doing, of your times and your seasons, so that I can cooperate and flow with what you are doing. God speaks through often our spirit that we sense things, we know things within the spirit. It is though you know, you know, we used to say, you know in your knower that God is doing this. You see all the signs around you. You read them very clearly and you know it's time for you to move into a position in humility. Evan Roberts says, speaking of a vision the Lord gave him, he said this, at another time, the arm and the hand were indistinct. So he saw an arm and a hand in, in a vision, as it were. He was, he was awake, so it was an open vision. And he didn't, he didn't know whose arm and hand it was. But he says, the piece of paper which it held had the figure 100,000 written on it. After that, whenever he prayed, he had no peace until he had asked God specifically for the number of souls. Lord, give me a hundred thousand souls he prayed it continually as God had moved upon him records show us that a hundred thousand souls were saved in the Welsh revival a revival that didn't last 12 months so he constantly in those Welsh valleys he saw a minimum or an average I should say really of 300 people a day coming to Christ 300 people a day. And this this young man was the instrument that God used. He wasn't a minister. He was a student. But God had moved upon him. His heart was moved upon by God and God spoke to him. And he was instrumental in what God wanted to do there, at that place, at that time. The fifth thing is to understand when God has promised something to us. I would suggest to you that prayer is not the first step of revival. Now, listen to me, it is vital that we pray, but really the first step is that God would promise us something. And this is true of all prayer. We must pray knowing that God has promised us something because when God has spoken, We put our faith in what God has said. Faith comes, it says, when we hear the word of God. God must first speak. And when God has spoken, we will find ourselves with the faith that's necessary to believe for it to happen and to pray it into being. Now, God can speak through his word. 
He has made many promises in his word, promises for revival in his word. But before we can commit ourselves to praying, God has to speak that word directly into our heart. We have to know and believe that God is going to move with revival power. And when he has spoken, then we can respond in prayer in faith. Without such a promise, there's no basis for effective prayer. We can pray with hope, but we're told to pray with faith and not hope. God must speak to us. If we pray outside of the promises of God, we pray in vain. So we have to present ourselves. We have to prepare ourselves before the Lord to hear him with such promises. This is what he promised on the day of Pentecost. It's in Acts 1 and 5. He said, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised. That was a direct word from the Lord. They were simply doing what he said. They could have faith in what he said. They gathered together, as it were. They said, we will stay here because he said shortly that the, the power of God will be manifested in a tremendous way. It says in Acts and, uh, 1 and 14, it says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Why did they gather to pray? Because Jesus promised them that if they gathered in a short time, he would be with them. He would come and he would send the promise that the Father had promised them. Part of the preparation there of revival is believing, being convinced that it's coming. I can't talk you into that. That's not my job. My job is to lay it before you. And then as you pursue God on this and God speaks to you so you can be one of those that God would gather together to pray for the promise to come. I know our nation needs revival. It desperately needs revival. I believe that with all my heart. I'd love to be involved in a revival, to see the revival, to see its outworking and to be instrumental in part of it. But God must quicken our hearts if we're to pray for it. He must quicken our hearts. It's a privilege. Do you see, when, when you read in these books about revival and those that God has gathered together to pray for it, it's a privilege. These people have put themselves, they prepared themselves, a preparedness for God to speak into their heart. And they have to then persevere in prayer. God speaks and that speaking from God will cause them to persevere. There are many general promises in scripture, but God must take the promise and make it specific in your own heart. And then you'll pray. Then you'll commit yourself to it. A few other general promises of revival. It says in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and it will shout for joy. Speaking of a dry and arid place where Life comes to it again in Psalm 68, 1 and 7. 
May God arise, he says. May his enemies be scattered. May his flows flee before him. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wastelands. See, there are promises of revival that as we read and allow the word of God to have its effect, God can cause the reality of it to come into our hearts. It must be a reality in our hearts. And then in the New Testament, we have another general promise of revival. It says, in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Like I said last week, that just wasn't a one-off experience. But there would be revival after revival after revival. Number six. We're nearly there. You know when you've reached the end. We get to number seven. So uh, hang on in there a little bit more. Number six is prayer. Of course, prayer is vital. So some of you might think, oh, Philip says, oh, I don't know if we should pray. Listen, we're going to have to pray. It says in Acts 1 and 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer until the Holy Spirit came and that tremendous revival that, that swept thousands into the kingdom before that awful day. Acts 2 and 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and they were praying. Dr. A.T. Pearson said, from the day of Pentecost, there has not been one great spiritual awakening in the land which has not begun in a union of prayer, though only among two or three. That was his opinion. Generally in church, not many people pray. They don't pray. In many churches, the ministers don't even pray. It's, it's amazing. It's always the smallest meeting of the church, the prayer meeting. People love a business meeting, but they're not so keen for a prayer meeting. I don't know why that is. Me, I'd steer very clear of a business meeting, uh, but it's the prayer meetings that are often uh, quite, you know, minimally attended. But fortunately, God doesn't need hundreds of people at a prayer meeting, just as well. He can just do it with a handful. Throughout the revival, it's essential to maintain prayer. Some have said a revival starts, and because of all the bickering and, and arguing and quarrelling that goes on, people stop praying and the thing soon peters out. If God has called you to pray for revival, his spirit will burst something in you to pray it through. He will. He will burst something in you. It is a prayer that perseveres. Hosea 10 and 12 said, until he comes and showers righteousness on you, we will pray. It is a prayer of faith. Faith unlocks the door of God's power. God speaks, and when God speaks, the faith comes. And as we pray in faith, it unlocks things with God. It's prayer in unity. It says Matthew 18 and 19. Again, I tell you that if two of you, I wonder why he emphasises the two. It only takes two. If two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. The prayer of agreeing where God has spoken into those hearts and people come together 
and they share what God has said and they pray with the unity. Spirit, uh, sorry, scripture and history show us that it does not have, it does not need to be the union of a great number of people. We spoke a little while ago about the Hebridean revival. And of course, it's, it's well recorded because it only happened in the 1950s. And uh, we know that there were just, initially, there were just two ladies. These could be the two ladies that were praying. Uh, I know one of the ladies was definitely blind. And so these two ladies that you can see on your screen now, that's all God moved upon, just these two. And these two then went to this, this minister who got a little group around them. And as they started to pray, we can see the effect of their prayers in this tent meeting here. So God isn't dependent on hundreds of us, but those that God would speak to must gather together to pray. At Pentecost, we know there were 120 that were gathered in the upper room together that day praying. 120 people brought down the greatest revival that New Covenant history knows. Within a few days, 3,000 people were brought into a brand new relationship with God. Some little while later, another 2,000 people were drawn in. A quarter of Jerusalem became saved in a very short period of time. Often, as you give yourself to this, you will be called to fast. It says in Nehemiah 1 and 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, God spoke to him. And when God spoke to him, the faith was in his heart to believe. And as he moved towards God, God showed him exactly what he was about to do. And the final one here is a willingness to accept all that revival entails. Are you open for change? Do you want change? Uh, I sort of experienced in my own life something of a revival. I've shared that with you. I might share some more. It, it, was, it was around the 1980s. Our whole life was turned upside down. It was completely. I was happy being a school teacher, happy at home, happy with stuff going on. And when God broke in, I was discontent in my work. I just wanted to serve the Lord. Uh, our, our home was turned upside down. The routines were all messed about. Our life, our order, our everything, everything got back. And this was only on a small scale. It was completely transformed by God coming. A revival will really mess your life up. It really, really will. Do you want that? You say, hang on a minute, I want people to be saved, but I don't want too much to change. I'm sorry, when God comes, and remember, he sets the twigs ablaze and the water begins to boil and the mountains start to shake and all those things we looked at last week, it will completely transform things. We need to be open to God. Dunnett said, to be unprepared for change is to be unprepared for revival you see god wants to prepare our hearts preparing us for what he wants to do 
Arthur Wallace said this, Revival means moving on with God, a willingness to abandon everything that God shows us is a hindrance to embrace whatever new light he causes to break forth from his word. I'll just finish with the quote I started with. Before there can be a blessing, somebody has to bear the burden, the part then that we will have to pay. God bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed the lesson today and please remember to join us next week for lesson three of the revival module. You can also partner with Arise Ministry by making a secure online donation through our website www.ariseministry.org.uk Arise Ministry, a living legacy.